When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome back to Unheard. I'm Florence Reed. Woke. It might be one of the most overused words of the last decade, but like it or not, the word itself and the politics that it describes seem to be here to stay. So it's probably a good idea to ask, what do we really mean when we call something woke and why does it even matter? With luck, someone much smarter than I has spent many years considering these very questions. Her name is Susan Nyman. Susan is a world-renowned moral philosopher and the author of many best-selling books, most recently the nomically titled Left is Not Woke. I'm holding a proof copy here. Professor Nyman joins me live from the East Coast to talk more about it. Thanks for taking some time to talk to us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's start with, because we're doing some philosophical heavy work here, I hope. Let's start with a bit of a working definition, because otherwise what we're going to do is kind of stray out into the wilderness of wokeness without any real sense of what we're talking about, because woke is a word that doesn't really have a a working definition per se. So in the context of your book, what do you mean when you call something woke? So what's really interesting is that on every single subject that I've ever written a book about, uh, people always want me to give a definition. And I have to argue that definitions are not actually what we need. We need analysis. And I've had this conversation about evil, over which I wrote a book. I've had this conversation about basically everything that I've ever written about. What we need are analyses, not definitions that allow us, you know, give us a set, a rule which says this is woke, this is not, um, this is evil, this is not. This starts, this starts us on a tricky, a, a tricky beginning because the pro- problem is here, of course, is if we can't define what woke is, then how can we say the left is, is or is not woke? Well, you know, <laughs> it's like the famous statement about pornography, right? You recognize it when you see it. We're all talking about it because there is a phenomena that everywhere I go, whether or not I mention the phenomena, uh, the title of my book, uh, I have other people starting conversations and I, I travel a fair amount. I have friends in many countries and it's not me that's starting these conversations, it's them. And I decided to write this book after the fourth or fifth conversation in which an old friend who I would have identified as left all their lives said, I guess I'm not left anymore. Look what's happening um, to the left. Certain kind of identity, identitarian politics, a certain confusion of justice with power, uh, a certain despair about the possibility of progress, even as people are say that they're working for progress. And I decided, no, no, (laughs) I'm not giving up the word left. I've been on the left all my life, and so have you. Um, Let's examine whether or not the left is really woke or the woke is left. I actually couldn't decide which way to um, uh, have the title work. Both of them would have worked, but my publisher said it was too complicated to try and say left is not woke and woke is not left. What I have done in this book is to provide 
some criteria of what it means to be left and liberal. And I'll tell you what they are. Uh, this is, these are three principles that both liberals and leftists have in common. We believe in universalism and not tribalism, that the most important thing connecting people are not the accidents they were born with, but the convictions that they have and the principles they stand for. That's number one. This does not mean that everybody has to be all the same or that cultural differences are uninteresting. Of course, cultural differences are interesting. But the fundamental thing that holds us together um, is a sense of human dignity that we recognize in every other human being, no matter where they came from. That's number one. Number two, we believe in the possibility of making a distinction between justice and power. Now, it's often a very hard distinction to make in practice, but the idea that justice is not simply one tribe's accumulating more power than the other is deeply important both to liberals and leftists. Finally, the belief that progress is possible through the efforts of people working together. This is sometimes caricatured as the belief that progress is inevitable, which I was going to say no person in their right mind be ever believed, but in some pieces of both Hegel and Marx, it looks like they are both saying that progress is inevitable. This is different from the claim that progress is possible, um, which was a revolutionary claim round about the 18th century. Now, all those three principles are common to people who are liberals and leftists. There's one principle that distinguishes leftists from liberals. So that's a fourth principle. And that's just the idea that along with political rights that we have towards freedom of speech and freedom of worship and uh, the right to vote for who we want and travel where we like, all those are liberal principles, we also have social rights. And those are rights to education, to health care, access to culture, um, a whole set of workers' rights that in liberal countries and among liberals are called benefits or safety nets um, or even entitlements. And that's a very different concept than thinking that believing that all of those things are rights. They were codified in the 1948 UN Declaration on Human Rights, which is uh, was ratified by most countries in the world. Um, it's never been entirely put into practice, but to be a leftist as opposed to being a liberal means that you think these aspirations in the UN Declaration of Human Rights are not utopian, it's possible to achieve them. Is it that, and here we're reaching a kind of definition by negation, which maybe is the classic philosophical thing to do, but might also be quite confusing for our audience, but those principles then, if they are not what wokeness is, does that give us a hint to what wokeness is? It does give us a clear idea of what wokeness is, and unfortunately, my thesis is that while there are a lot of leftist emotions among the woke, they're guided by the same emotions, okay? Um, a concern for marginalized and oppressed communities, a desire for justice, uh, the interest in working towards progress. They're caught by theories that undermine those genuinely decent emotions which they share with people on the left and that that's the confusion so that when people talk about the woke left or the far left or the radical left they're actually you know they're noting a set of emotions but the theories that have taken over public discourse in the last 20 30 years undermine what are genuinely decent and praiseworthy emotions so that we're going in the opposite direction that we intend to go in. Or we, when I say we now, I include also those who get called the woke left, but, but are being undermined by the, the theory. Now, this does not mean by any means, you know, that everybody's a philosopher and that everybody has studied deeply, say, the works of Michel Foucault, the most quoted author in post-colonial studies 
or Carl Schmitt, uh, weirdly a Nazi, uh, a totally unrepentant Nazi, who has had a lot of influence on the left. I'm not saying that uh, people who consider themselves to be woke, have studied seriously the works, but they pass into the culture. They're, they're uh, in fairly straightforward forms. You can see them in the media. You, you can see a set of assumptions in the media and that are based on some very wrong-headed philosophy. So I thought it was time for a philosopher to come along and try and untangle that. It's a shame as well that it seems that there are so many misreadings underpinning this movement, if that is the case, because it does seem to have cropped up in academic circles. It's amongst university graduates that this kind of ideology seems to have caught grip. And so why is it that those people who should surely be the most highly educated, the most well-read, have fallen prey to such bad misreadings of these kind of classical texts? That's a great question. Um, I don't think they're misreadings of classical texts, though. I think that... Misusings, perhaps. Well, no, no. I think that the sort of foundational theorists of woke and post-colonial movements are just dead wrong, okay? So they've started, they've started with a really dodgy bit of theory and then they've opened out from there, okay. <laughs> That's exactly correct, okay? Now, why, what's the appeal of this dodgy bit of theory? I think it's because liberalism has been so disappointing in so many ways. Um, and frankly, I don't think the left has gotten its act together since 1991. I don't think there has ever been uh, enough of a serious public discussion of why state socialism collapsed. I always have to say this, I'm not a Stalinist, I'm not a defender of the Soviet Union, but the collapse of state socialism has been used to uh, suggest in Margaret Thatcher's uh, famous words, there is no alternative uh, to neoliberalism. And that's basically the view that has swept the majority of the world. And many people who would have traditionally called themselves left really didn't know what to do, um, weren't in a position to do a sort of careful critique of what had gone wrong with state socialism, what might be changed, how it might work uh, differently, and were quite helpless. And then on the other hand, people see the failures of liberalism, the ways in which, although many countries, I guess Britain and the United States, sometimes <laughs> I'm not sure of either, but many countries profess uh, a commitment, say, to equality of opportunity in a situation where everyone knows the gap between wealth and poverty is increasing enormously, where everyone knows how much influence um, money and corporate sway has on politics. So I think that's one reason why people are attracted to the theories of this Nazi, Carl Schmitt. Carl Schmitt showed or, or wrote about the hypocrisy of liberal democracies. And he wrote about the hypocrisy of countries uh, claiming to stand up for freedom and democracy and yet holding vast colonies. He talked about Britain's colonial empire. He talked about the United States and the Monroe Doctrine. And of course, he's absolutely right about that. The problem is what people fail to notice is he's writing about that in 1942. You know? That is, this is support for Nazi Germany and basically saying everybody else is just as bad. They're just slightly more hypocritical about, okay? So we can go ahead and colonize, um, you know, Europe uh, all the way from, I don't know, Belgium to Vladivostok because the people we're fighting basically did a softer version of the same thing. Now, um, and and by the way, one of the things that, that always shocks me about Schmidt 
about the so-called left's embrace of Schmidt is this is not somebody who at the end of the war decided, you know, he was wrong. He didn't ever. He, to the end of his days, he insisted that he had been right. And his favorite place to hang out, aside from his little village in uh, northern Germany, was Franco's Spain. He thought it was a great place. It's more than a small irony that potentially, if you're right, and Schmidt is the kind of earth thinker of a lot of these woke ideas, that the group who online are quickest to call other people Nazis might actually have been themselves infected with Nazi ideology without even realizing? Um, it's something that academics know who've spent some time with it. Um, it's also something that everybody knows about Heidegger, who's also enormously influential uh, on leftist theory, who was also a completely unrepentant Nazi. And, and um, you know, but they are certainly more... Uh, more influential than the people I think we should be listening to and reading, which are the philosophers of the Enlightenment. But Schmidt and Nazi, uh, Schmidt and Nazi, um, Schmidt and Heidegger are, um, you know, are, are one side of of the theoretical influences that I think are extraordinarily mistaken. The other is the French thinker Michel Foucault, who is the most quoted thinker of um, post-colonial studies. He's not someone who, um, you know, these are, these, are, these are people who are dead and have been dead for a while. So it tends to be their students and epigonies who get read in college classrooms. But I would wager, I haven't done a study, I would wager that if undergraduates who are not specializing in philosophy read one book of philosophy. It's Michel Foucault's Discipline and Punish. Now, Foucault is a very slippery figure. He certainly was not an unrepentant Nazi. And I even have one friend Actually, the friend whose apartment I'm sitting at the moment, who thinks I'm <laughs> dangerous. Unfair. This is dangerous territory. You might get he's evicted. Not, he's, not, no, he's, not, he's, he's, he's read my manuscript. He offered some criticisms, including saying, you know, he thought I was unfair to Foucault. He once had a three-hour conversation with Foucault, in which Foucault claimed that all that he was doing was for the sake of liberation. But Foucault is a very slippery figure. What disturbs me so much about Foucault is not necessarily the tribalism. That's not his issue. His issue is that there is no distinction between justice and power. There's a very famous and very interesting television debate between him and Noam Chomsky that ran on Dutch television in 1970. I highly recommend it. It's still floating around on the internet. Back when TV and used to be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And afterwards, uh, Chomsky said that um, uh, Foucault was the most amoral man he ever met. Um, Foucault took a very radical view of the idea that Moral judgments are not something we should make and not something we can justify. But rather than justifying that claim, he, he's, he's just dismissive. He's very contemptuous of anyone who makes moral judgments um, and talks about just, justice rather than power. One more, one more point where I think uh, Foucault's influence has been disastrous. In many of his books, Discipline and Punish being the most famous and typical one, he talks about how things which looked like they were progress, that looked like reforms that would make the world better, actually turned into what uh, he saw as a more insinuous and a more disturbing form of uh, oppression and repression. And it's that message that has infected the woke to this day because, you know, they're often unwilling to acknowledge any form of progress. Maybe this moment is a good time to move on to a discussion of the real world and Black Lives Matter in particular, which is something you do 
speak a lot about in the new book, because to me that seems like a really good example of a time in which justice and power has become somewhat muddied, and that if you took the view of the opposing side to the woke left, which some might call the far right or just the right wing, their arguments during that time was often that there had been a confusion between what it meant to have racial justice, fight for racial justice on the streets of America, and an idea of black power over white power, which was, the, I think, the underlying anxiety that a lot of the right, justified or not, had about that moment, the Black Lives Matter moment, um, which I think led to slogans like All Lives Matter, which I think if, if read sympathetically, which is what we try to do here, is basically a plea for a kind of um, a treatment of the issue as a universal issue, as opposed to a, a tribal issue. And so I think in Black Lives Matter, there was this moment where we did have to grapple with the problem of some people exerting more power for the first time in history and how that made the other side feel and the feelings of injustice, whether it was or not, that they had about that. What, what's your take on it? In the book, you, you kind of bring quite a nuanced lens to it, but I'm just interested to know how you respond to that. Thanks for that question, which is really important. When Black Lives Matter began and George Floyd was murdered, uh, I could not have been more supportive, happy, glad. I had just published a book called Learning from the Germans, which was about the idea that the US, Britain, and other countries needed to look at their own historical crimes you know, in similar manners to um, the way that the Germans have done, not perfectly, but still um, to a greater extent than any other nation has ever done. So um, it initially seemed to me that what was happening was exactly what I had been calling to happen, calling for. And I, you know, I'm of the age where you weren't supposed to uh, go on the street without, there were no vaccines in the middle of the pandemic. So I, my kids were out on the streets. I was not, but I was giving Zoom talks and donating all of my uh, honoraria to Black Lives Matter legal fees. And I, I, you know, was absolutely as supportive and moved as it, I think it was possible to be. Something changed um, in the late summer or fall or big early fall of 2020. And what changed is the universalism of the movement. Now, there's been there's sociological data, um, at least in the U.S. I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world. More than half of the people on the streets were uh, not people of color. More than half of the people who were engaged were not people of color. I mean, you could see it in the footage. You could just watch the videos of people out there. There were there were many places, like Portland's a good example of one, where you would be lucky if you saw a person of color. It was ninety nine percent white. Some of them, really... I reckon. Some of them, I reckon, were wearing balaclavas just in the hope that someone would, you know, not know which race they were because they were so white. Well, unfortunately, Oregon is so white. It was a state that you know once prohibited black people from living there. So, so Oregon, Portland is very white, but. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. You could just look at it, but some sociologists have done run the numbers and came up with them. So that's a good thing. At a certain point, um, the leaders of Black Lives Matter, but also some of the white supporters moved into a very different form of discourse, which is that the the new line was that this had to be a black movement for black rights for which white people could be allies. And my response was, guys, I know what allies are. Allies are people who, you know, have for a limited period of time similar interests, like the United States and Britain and the Soviet Union during the Second World War. And as soon as the interests diverged, 
um, you know, the U.S. certainly went all out in the Cold War to, um, they didn't care if they supported old Nazis, uh, as long as they were good anti-communists who could fight the Cold War. Yeah, it's sign of underpins being an ally, you have to have something to gain. You can't have nothing to gain from the situation. Correct. Correct. And it's about interest rather than principle. Okay. I supported Black Lives and still do support certain pieces of Black Lives Matter out of principle. Okay. Um, and that's very different than supporting it out of interest. And Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All of those, not, you know, white people who were out on the streets in the middle of a plague, you know, this is, they were not supposed it out of interest. They were supporting it out of uh, a commitment to justice, a realization that black Americans get much less justice than white Americans do, and that they're uh, proportionally much more likely to be arrested or killed by the police. Now, this doesn't mean that I support All Lives Matter. Okay? I mean, I do. Um, in, in, in principle. principle. <laughs> in, of, course, all, of course, All Lives Matter. But most of the people who were shouting All Lives Matter were, first of all, I, I think there was a touch of racism in many of those people. Philosophically, what they were doing was asserting a very, very banal truth, of course All Lives Matter, um, and ignoring the empirical one, the f actual fact that black lives are more threatened by the police than um, you know, white lives. I, I mean, I have, uh, there's always an interesting question about whether uh, I'm Jewish, so whether Jews are fully white. Um, at some periods, we've been considered not at all. It's at the moment, many of us are not considered. But there's a difference between my walking down the street and a friend of color walking down the street, there are places that I would worry. Here's the question of intent, though, and I think this might be the crux of the Black Lives Matter problem, is that there is a misunderstanding of the other's intent. I think many on the All Lives Matter side would argue that their intentions are just the same, to celebrate the unity of humanity and the equality that we should all be striving for, hence all. Whereas the Black Lives Matter movement, the activists, they would say that, well, the point is, we need to focus on this one area of injustice before we can look at the universal. In the end, though, I think many might agree that there's a kind of universality at the heart of it. It's just that the words are different, the language is different. We start to get bogged down in this kind of misapprehension of each other's intentions. And it spirals from there. I don't know, maybe I'm being too kind. That is a good point. Um, and there are bad faith actors on both sides. I mean, that money that you gave early in the Black Lives Matter movement, you said it went to the legal fees. Do you know that it went to the legal fees? Because it does, there is some evidence to suggest that it didn't. I know, I know. And, uh, you know, what I, 
you know, my intention was um, in a pandemic where people were demonstrating, black people were being arrested, uh, usually at a higher rate than white people. And the pandemic was raging in the prisons. It seemed to me that the best thing I could do with any extra money I had would be to, you know, help people get out of prison. Okay, that that seemed in the spirit. I'm still glad I gave it. You know, I don't regret it. I hope some of it went to what I uh, intended it to go to. You're right about assuming the worst intention on all sides. And I, I think that's something that we need to watch out for. Um, you're absolutely right. But, but there are bad faith actors. Um, and what you're doing now, and I understand that you're doing it because trying to disconnect power and justice in real practical terms is often very tricky. But I'd like to get away from the power discourse because I know very, very clearly um, how many people, white people is always such a weird constructed category as is people of color, but um, I know how many white people you know, genuinely were out in the streets and, and elsewhere and still are because they know historically how much injustice has been directed towards black people. And I fear that the people who shout all lives matter are not facing that injustice. And that's injustice that I want to face. That's the difference between my position and theirs. Okay. I want to acknowledge um, the deep injustices that have run through our societies without making injustice um, a, funda- a a tribal category, okay? Even if one tribe in a particular, you know, historical moment or many historical moments has been subject to more injustice than another, what I care about is justice, not tribes, I'd be interested to know how you've been received in your academic settings with your colleagues and students as someone who's not afraid to look backwards, some might call that conservative, to look back towards the Enlightenment figures who now have been roundly disabused of their position in the canon by many kind of postmodern academics. No, I'm saying they're not the true leftists. Forget that. Um, That's exactly why I wrote this book. Um, I am still... uh, I've been a committed leftist all my life, and I haven't changed. But this is also what people say. They say the Overton window has shifted. I didn't change. The left changed. And therefore, I'm no longer on the left. So what do you say to someone who's having that experience? I'm saying um, look again at exactly what kinds of views are being held by the woke and ask yourself if those are truly leftist views. That's the point of this book. Look, um, and of course... I suppose I have been and will be called a conservative. I, um, you know, I begin the book by saying I'm not a liberal and a leftist and I'm happy to be a socialist, okay? Um, So let's start right there. Not everybody is, I am. Um, And I also mentioned the fact that I'm the director of the uh, uh, Einstein Forum and Albert Einstein in the middle of the McCarthy period was uh, completely proud to call himself a socialist. So that's, you know, um, those are some of my antecedents. My other antecedents are the Enlightenment. And when I first began to hear around the turn of the millennium that the Enlightenment was uh, Eurocentric and racist. This is like universities who now have to do a mea culpa when they talk about Kant, that because he was a white, heteronormative man with racist views, that his writings should be taken with a very big grain of salt. Correct. And, you know, not only him, but the entire Enlightenment. I mean, at this point in time, if you say the word Enlightenment, um, except to damn it, you're hit with the claim that, you know, you Eurocentrist, um, racist, white person, how dare you? And when I first started hearing these claims, they weren't as widespread in the in the early aughts as they are now. But I just thought this is 
frankly, so ignorant that it's going to go away. And I don't even need to address those reproaches because they're so unfounded. Well, so much for my um, my ability Your to optimism. spot friends. <laughs> <laughs> don't or become a political I, forecaster, maybe. I never am. I always, people ask me for forecasts. I say, you know, I'm not a prophet, I'm a philosopher. But um, my uh, my ability to spot intellectual trends was was not great. Look, the reason why I thought and still think it was a silly reproach is that the very idea of Eurocentrism was invented by the Enlightenment. It was the Enlightenment um, already in the 18th and late uh, 17th century, which said to Europeans, you need to learn from other countries. You need to learn from other geographical perspectives. There's a lot wrong with Europe. And if we looked at the Persians, said Montesquieu, the Chinese, said Christian Wolf, um, the uh, Tahitians or the Native Americans, said um, many people, um, we could learn a lot from those cultures. So the whole idea of Eurocentrism comes from the Enlightenment. And moreover, unlike uh, academics who are, you know, uh, on enduring shitstorms on Twitter at most, these are people who risked their lives in order to say these things. There's one story about somebody who's not read anymore, but he was the major influence on the young Immanuel Kant, Christian Wolf. Christian Wolf learned Chinese, studied some Chinese philosophy, and made a public statement that the Chinese um, had morality, even though they didn't have, even though they weren't Christians. For this, he was given 48 hours to leave his job uh, his country, which was Prussia, or be executed. You know, this these people took real risks to argue for universalism, to argue that Europeans uh, were by no means superior to other cultures, but had a lot to learn from them. Moreover, they absolutely criticized colonialism. Kant called it an evil and the source of all evils that can. Uh, uh, affect humankind. Diderot has passages in which he says, I mean, he's obviously not speaking to native South Africans, but if he could, he would say, let fly your poison arrows at the Dutch invaders. Um, don't believe a word they say. Leave not one of them alive to tell the tale. I mean, this is... Um, you know, as strong anti-colonial rhetoric um, as you could give. So, but isn't this just a, a simple confusion again between identity and ideas, that it does not necessarily follow that the identity of a white heteronormative man like Kant has to dictate how he thinks, because he is cap capable of creative thought. But this is fundamentally the thing that seems to be lost at the moment in academic circles. And has caused perhaps, I mean, maybe this is just my, my view of it, having only recently been in the university, I saw the genesis of these ideas coming through a, a fear, a deep fear, and probably a rightful one in many cases, that you were not supposed to speak about things of which you didn't understand. And that's, I suppose, where we're at now, the crossroads, is do we allow people to talk about ideas beyond themselves? Or do we trap them in their identity? And this is, I suppose, where the big question is, which is how do we escape, you know, the, of course, the question at the end of your book, when you close the final page is, okay, so how do we get out of this? Then if left is not woke, how do we expel wokeness from the left? Well, that's my question, I suppose, is where do we go from here if we've got too much intermixing between ideas and identity? And, you know, how do we separate this? It's, it's, it's a really, it's quagmire, it's quagmire territory. I do end the book um, with the example of Nazi Germany and the fact that different people who understood themselves to belong to the left couldn't get their act together. And the only reason why fascism triumphed in Germany was because of, you know, the infighting among people who had similar 
concerns um, on the left, but, uh, you know, used up their energy in fighting, literally in street fighting in some ways. So I, I end the book with a warning. Look, I think the answer to how we do this is just do it. And I really like the way you put your question because maybe you've given me a, a definition of woke. Um, it's confusing identity with ideas. And um, I mean, it's not just that. That's, I didn't just want to go after the identitarian issue. I wanted also to talk about power and justice and, and progress. But um, you're right that that's absolutely um, fundamental to... Um, um, the woke and fundamental to the idea, uh, fundamental to the objections that I and people whom I care about and respect and are my friends are appalled by. Look, um, culture is appropriation, as a friend of mine has put it. So there can there can be no culture without cultural appropriation. No, absolutely not. And you see that in Anthony Appiah's excellent book, The Lies That Bind. You know, culture, culture, con, capitalism is the wrong model for culture. Why do you have ideas or do you make culture if you don't want it to spread? You know, if you don't want it to influence other people. And, you know, the only way, it seems to me, to overcome racism and tribalism is to appreciate some a culture that isn't your own and you will never be able to work your way into all of them but if everybody picked two cultures preferably with different languages um were different from their own and worked their way into reading the literature listening to the music looking at the art um, you get two things, you get several benefits by doing this. First of all, you get a better understanding of your own culture because you realize what you're taking for granted and assuming that another set of people don't. And that's extremely important. Secondly, you learn thereby about the difference uh, between you and members of another culture, but you also learn about what you have in common. And it's the only way to overcome the tribal uh, differences that bring us down. And of course, I will never understand, uh, you know, a culture that I didn't grow up in, in the way that I understand the one I grew up in. Of course not. But, you know, work and sensitivity is the only way to go. And by the way, uh, the idea that woke is a war between uh, younger and older people is actually not what I experience. I experience an awful lot of people who are still, I mean, the guardians of cultural institutions are still in their 50s and 60s, okay? And I experience both in Berlin, but also in the States. And also, actually, I have to say, when I was in Britain last spring, I experience a lot of 60-year-olds uh, you mentioned guilt as a factor. A lot of 60-year-olds rushing to keep up with the woke um, and not um, partly out of fear of, and I'm not really sure of what, um, but people who are afraid to say things out loud that they will say after a while when um, they feel they can trust you. I suppose my final question here then is, how urgent is the issue of factionalism within the left? How much is this going to come up against the unity, like it or lump it, the right does have a certain degree of unity that the left is currently missing. They seem to be able to keep a broad church and welcome people in with open arms to their movement, kind of whoever they are, whereas the left seems to be much more choosy about who they have on their side. How urgent is this fight then to end factionalism on the left? It's extremely urgent. And it's also, as you probably know, has been a historical problem, uh, you know, for centuries um, on the left. I mean, if you want to take the historical left as starting with the French Revolution, you could say it was the thing that doomed the French Revolution, okay? So 
but it's extremely urgent now. People talk about the rise of authoritarianism. I'm concerned about the threat of fascism, and people are scared to say it. But there are people in the current Israeli government who call themselves fascists, ministers. There are many people in the current Indian government who embrace fascist principles. And there are plenty of, of people in the United States um, who, I, I think the word populist is fairly empty. I think that Donald Trump and his followers and people who are now incredibly powerful in Congress are failed fascists. They're failed so far. Um, we have absolutely no guarantee that they won't win the next time around. So there are two things that the left needs to do, and, and I hope that my little book can contribute to it. Unite around certain principles, even if we have differences of language and emphasis, and that's fine, you know. Um, you know, that's what freedom of speech is about. That's what reflection and interesting thinking is about. Um, but those of us who are anti-fascists need to um, unite around certain principles. Because if we don't, you know, first of all, there won't be enough of us to uh, win elections that desperately need to be won. Um or even, I fear, you know, put off putches that may be down the road. I, I don't think anybody who has watched the last five years of international political movements seriously thinks this is an exaggeration. But the other thing, and I have to say it, is that a lot of woke excess is really pushing people towards the right in ways that, um, you know, is very dangerous. We're losing people. We're losing people. I mean, if you're, if you're seeking unity in a place to call home politically, you're probably off better on the right if that's just what you're looking for than on the left as it stands. Well, it depends. I mean, I just had a very disturbing encounter with somebody I've known most of my life um, who I would have always I, someone who's weird politically, but who was, is, I, I thought these were just people I read about, but I just uh, spent time with a relative who I was shocked to see is, although she's been really, you know, comes from a left-wing family and, uh, you know, been politically active all her life is, is so put off by uh, by woke excess. And she's supporting people I would like to call libertarianism, libertarians, but when I read more about them, um, it's quite far right. And that is happening. One hears about it happening. I just happened to have experienced it yesterday. <laughs> so here we're not talking about people turning to apathy. They're actually turning to activism on the other side. It's doing more than just pushing them, disenfranchising. It's pushing them all the way over. Correct. It's doing both. I mean, it's pushing people towards saying eh, political activism. There's no uh, nothing I can really sign on to. I'm just gonna, you know, pull back self care, um, healthy eating, <laughs> go back to the land. Retreat. You know, retreat. That, yeah. That there's there's exactly let's just retreat from politics there's no good and decent road to to go right now and that's a real danger you say optimism is about kind of coping with what we've got and making the best of it why should we be hopeful for something different well no i optimism is something slightly different optimism is making a prediction about the future that things are getting better I can't make that prediction because I see two huge dangers. And one is the threat of fascism and the other is the threat of climate catastrophe. Hope is not about uh, the way the world is and is necessarily going to be. It's about changing the world. It's not about facts. It's about 
changing facts. It's about the idea that facts can be changed. But the only way they can possibly be changed um, is if we have some hope that we can change them. And otherwise, it's absolutely certain that we will go down the tubes. Now, this is a, an argument that originally comes from Immanuel Kant, but which I told Noam Chomsky because Chomsky makes makes exactly the same argument. He says the world will come to an end um, if we uh, retreat into cynicism and despair. And I said, Kant said that too. Uh, <laughs> Chomsky says it a little more pithily, but um, both of them are right. It's 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 a very simple choice. If we despair, we lose. If we're cynical, we lose. If we hope that we can stop these looming catastrophes, we have a chance. Just a chance. That's why I'm not an optimist. But we do have a chance. I think that's quite an apt note to finish on. Susan Nyman, thank you so much for your time. This has been a pleasure to talk. That was Susan Nyman, the moral philosopher and author of the new book, Left is Not Woke, which comes out soon. Her argument there was quite a straightforward one. If the left is going to have any chance of beating fascism and the far right, then it's going to have to find some new unity. How they're going to do that, I suppose, is another question. Thanks to her for coming on, to you for watching. This was Unheard. 